Welcome to The Dirt on the Past, a program of the Extreme History Project that explores the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past. Because, let's face it, Crystal. Yep, history is not pretty, but it is so important to know. Because it is the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns that we have in the present. So join me, Nancy Mahoney. And me, Crystal Alegria. As we talk to archaeologists and historians who have been digging in the dirt. And in the archives. To uncover the fascinating histories that are not only relevant to today's issues. But help us move forward in a better way with a deeper understanding of our past. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGLT studios speaking via Zoom with Anne-Marie Koistra about historic sex work in Los Angeles. And we're excited to talk with Anne-Marie, especially about this topic. But first, Crystal, let's check in. How was your last week or two weeks, I think it's been for us? Yeah, I think it's been a couple of weeks, good weeks. Um, we've been doing a lot of consulting, which is really fun wow. and really is really interesting. What and are you consulting about? We're consulting about... Um, using equity and inclusion in history. And of course, extreme wow. history kind of did that before equity and inclusion was cool, you know? Totally. <laughs> um, extreme history's always Leader been Leader in of, the field. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of doing that work of including histories that haven't been included before nice. and, you know, and making it equitable and making it um, open for everybody because it's so important to have the history out there that you identify with and you see yourself in. And so the more history, historical narratives that we can include, the better. And so, of course, nice. that's what we've always done is tried to include those marginalized voices that have been excluded for one reason or another. And so we've been doing some work um, with a few entities around equity and inclusion, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been really great. So, um, so nice. yeah, a little bit instead of front-facing work, like we usually do with our lecture series and this podcast and, right. all, and the walking tours and different things, we've been doing a little bit of behind-the-scenes work, which is really great. So what's the what's the next lecture coming up in the lecture? It's series? tonight. Oh my gosh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's tonight, and I can come. Good, awesome. I'm glad. So what yeah, am I coming to listen to? So it's going to be John Russell talking about. <laughs> the um, Gallatin Valley Women's Seminary, the historical seminary that was started by the Methodist Church here in Bozeman. And so it's going to be, John Russell is a great speaker. Um, he and he's he's just always fun to listen to on all of his many topics he can speak to. And so um, so that is this evening. Wonderful. So Good yeah. timing. Yeah. I know. And for the folks out there listening, we usually do record those lectures um, and then put them on our YouTube page. So if you just Google Extreme History Project YouTube, you will find that lecture waiting for you when and you get there. And it's not nearly as bitter cold, so no, hopefully will be a, a we'll nice some, turnout. Yeah. Yeah. Some, uh, it'll probably be a good crowd tonight. So I'm excited. And, you know, it's Women's History Month, so we've been doing Perfect. a lot of Women's History Month activities all month. And so we have um, been raffling a quilt, a women's history quilt. Um, mm. And we're going to pick the raffle winner tonight at the lecture. So Oh, it's tonight. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. So when you come, Nancy, you have to yes. buy a ticket before okay, you go Okay, that's in. right. I do need to. I know. <laughs> I'm excited about that. And then yeah. I know, and I have to find a place for it if I do win it. I know. It's yeah. beautiful. It's a beautiful green quilt. Oh, so it's lovely. very spring-like, even though... It's not very spring-like here in Montana We're right now. We're just going to will it. We're going to will it into coming here in Montana. It's been brutal. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So, but what about you, Nancy? How's your week been? Yeah. So the last um, week or two, so my last trip I took was to Boise to see my daughter oh, at college. Fun. That's right. And it was a beautiful drive, and Boise felt a little bit more spring-like, and we went to an ABBA tribute concert. Oh, my god! ABBA mania, and she had gotten us, like, third row tickets and I think my wow. daughter and I were the youngest people there. <laughs> A lot definitely, of sparkles. Definitely feeling it. Everyone <laughs> dancing. It was awesome. We had so much fun. Oh, we good. we knew I mean, I think Mama Mia came out when she was quite young. Yeah. And so the two of us just knew every word of every song oh, and that fun. was a lot of fun. And then Boise's just a lovely town and yeah. itself has a lot of history. So um, then we had a great girls day going shopping and stuff like that oh, so fun. super fun and um and then back here i'm you know kind of in honor of women's history month i'm reading a book about 
Cleopatra, sort of mm-hmm. from a women's and feminist perspective, not mm-hmm. from just male historians, ancient male historians, and then Shakespeare and others. They're just these really different ways of getting behind the documents that we have and trying to understand better from context about this woman and what she achieved and what we rarely think about because we just think about the the movies and the plays, right, you know? Right. So that's been fun. And you're reading a really good book, too. I right? am. I'm reading a book that you told me about called um, Femina, which is about women in med- medieval Europe who had more agency than we think they did. Right. And so, so um, yeah, so hopefully we can talk about Maybe both we of can these switch books, books after yeah, and yeah. we can hopefully talk to the authors. Yeah. yeah. On the, okay. On the podcast. So, so we should get back. We should get we back should. to our guest. Yes. Okay. But Nancy, before I, we get back to oh, Anne-Marie, yeah. I also wanted to That's mention right. our sponsor for this podcast, which is the Western Heritage Center located in Yay. Billings, Montana. We love them. We do. We do. And if you haven't been to the Western Heritage Center for a while, now is the time to go because they just opened with a lot of new exhibits. And their mission is to collect, preserve, and tell the stories of the people and places of the Yellowstone River Valley and the northern High Plains region here in Montana. And right now they have a new amazing exhibit called Breaking Bread, Food and Community Identity. And so, of course, we know that food connects people, but it also is such an important way for communities to solidify their identity. And so this exhibit explores how food embodies concepts of tradition, acceptance, and power through stories and objects from the communities of the Yellowstone River Valley. Valley. So this exhibit, Breaking Bread, is up through December of 2023. So make sure to stop in and see it before it's too late. So thanks so much to the Western Heritage Center. We sure appreciate it. But Anne-Marie, we are so glad to have you with us today. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Great. Wonderful. Great. Well, we like to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about our guests. So Dr. Anne-Marie Koistra is professor of history at Bethel University, and she teaches courses on sexuality as well as crime and punishment. Check out her most recent publication, which is The Enterprising Career of Tom Savage in Los Angeles' Red Light District between 1870 and 1909. And it is in the book Fellows, Smith, and Munn, Editors of Historical Sex Work, New Contributions from History and Archaeology. So yeah, and that's a little bit of a mouthful, isn't that it? That is, yeah. <laughs> Very descriptive title, which is helpful when yeah. you're looking for things. But yeah. <laughs> so Amory, I wanted to just start off by asking you, as we usually do, what brought you to history and to researching the history of sex work in Los Angeles? Um, you know, it's not a topic that people tend to gravitate towards. So I'm really interested what brought, well, first, I guess there's kind of two questions in there, history in general, but then also your your work on sex work. Yeah. So for any undergraduates listening, I did not go into college thinking I was going to be a history major. Instead, I did the impractical thing of following my joy. Oh, nice. And that was... Wonderful. I would go to my um, history classes that I was required to take as part of the core curriculum. And I was amazed by the kinds of stories my history professors were telling. And so I just kept taking more classes and I ended up with a history and English double major, which seems rather impractical, but um, it worked out. Um, So then when I applied to graduate school, I applied to um, places where I knew of some of the historians who were working uh, at those universities. And I ended up in Los Angeles because Lois Banner was teaching at the University of Southern California. And she had written this textbook on um, basically the history of U.S. women. And when I was an undergraduate in the 1990s, my department um, did not have a single female historian on staff. But... My um, professors were gracious enough to allow me to write every single research paper and every single history class I ever took on some facet of gender and women. Wonderful. Yeah. Isn't that great? So my senior year of college, I was really attracted to writing something about women's history that would take me 
in a challenging direction. And I wrote about the free love feminist Victoria Woodhull in 19th century America. Oh, I love mm. Victoria Woodhull. Yeah. yeah. So she is she was she was something else. She ran for president in 1872 and oh. made Frederick Douglass her running mate without right. telling him. Oh. Yeah. She was that kind of a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so and so when I got to Los Angeles and I was kind of um, looking around for a topic and I was working with Lois Banner, she said, you know, I know you're attracted to something in women's history. And I know that you're attracted to something that is sort of outside your sort of milieu. Nobody's written a history of prostitution in Los Angeles. Why don't you do it? And I think that was also because my father was a police officer in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he worked on the major case team. And so our dinner mm. conversations around the table were a little unusual. <laughs> yeah, I and bet. I was <laughs> very interested um, in crime from a very early age. And yeah. so as soon as Lois suggested that, I was like, oh, yes, that's that's me. Right. Let, I will do that. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love just this whole history, especially of looking at um, red light districts in the West in general, because they they seem to be for so long tolerated, even though they're supposed to be illegal and there's these ways around it. And then that changes. And, and I find that whole history of just how to deal with that so fascinating. And so what happens in Los Angeles that you talk about, I was saying to Crystal, mirrors a lot of even what we have found in the research that that Crystal's done out in our own town in Bozeman and in a lot of other of the early towns in Montana. So just to start off, in your dissertation, you you focus on Los Angeles and the red light district there. And we're talking now sort of 19th century. Let's start with that. Um, so you look at the origins of Los Angeles and then how prostitution sort of grew in the city, with the city, as part of the city. So can you, for listeners, just sketch out for us a little bit about what the red light district in the 19th century was like, how it changed and evolved, and if there were hierarchies of places where people went? Because we then we do start to get, at the turn of the century, other changes. But let's start with the 19th century. Yeah. So... In, in many ways, yeah, Los Angeles, like you were saying, is pretty representative of what's happening um, in a lot of towns as they're maturing in the West, but it's also in some ways indicative of the larger national story. And so in Los Angeles, there was a pretty clear hierarchy of prostitution. Um, at the very top were the parlor houses. And in the um, dissertation, I talked about two madams in particular who ran um, fairly famous local parlor houses. Um, the first generation is really represented by Cora Phillips. And she really ran um, her place called the Golden Lion hmm. because apparently it had lions in front nice. of the, the place, wow. you know. Um, um, and she was running that late 1870s through about the 1880s. And then um, closer to the turn of the 20th century, uh, we have Pearl Morton, who was running what police officers just called the Morton Club mm. <laughs> from the uh, late 1890s through uh, about 1908, uh, when the red light district got shut down. And so if you went to the parlor house as a client, you were usually somebody who could afford a higher priced experience. You were expecting um, a rather opulent kind of um, surrounding. You were um, treated as a valued guest. And I think the thing that I was really interested in is the relative power that madams exercised in this space. So in some ways they were kind of recreating a lavish domestic space. Right. Like so they that were hosting really feel of. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Entertained and right. um uh welcomed. Um and then at the very bottom of in terms of like housed sex works work were the cribs. Mm. And that seems to be um more of a Western designation than yeah. you find um in the Midwest or on the East Coast. And in the crib district district, um, excuse me, uh, this was be this would be more for a working class clientele. So 
the prices were much more affordable and the women who were working in the cribs were definitely making their money on the volume of clients they were seeing, not on a higher price charge to say one client at a time. Um, obviously these are much smaller spaces. And I think what's really interesting is that these were, they started out as buildings that were really constructed very specifically to be cribs. Mm. And so they're like, like they're, they're rows. Each crib has a door mm -hmm. to a very small space. And it's usually large enough to hold a pretty spare bed, a uh, washstand, and that's pretty that's much it. it. And so mm -hmm. unlike the parlor houses where the prostitutes sometimes would also live, right? the cribs are places where this is pretty much just used for the work and women would then go rent um, cheap places to mm -hmm. stay in oh, other so places nearby. Live, they wouldn't live in their cribs. Do you do you yeah. have any sense of um, where those first started? It's just occurring to me now that we've seen these. You know, mm -hmm. we have some examples in Bozeman, and you're right; they're replicated mm -hmm. and they're specifically constructed in that way. Were they borrowed from anywhere else? This idea of cribs did they come over from anywhere else with people immigrating yeah. from other countries or? Was it a purely I, Western innovation, so to speak? I, I don't know, but it's it's got to be part of the fact that you you could have new construction, right? Right, right. Okay, are, good right? point. Yes. So San Francisco also has cribs, right? And that's because they're they're creating and building yes. these cities. Yeah. And in Los Angeles, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but part of the problem for both reformers and city boosters was that there was a row of cribs along Alameda Street, which also ends up being the location for the main railroad into the city center. Mm. Right. So it's great for women who want to advertise from the window and doorways. Right. But it's terrible in terms of trying to attract. And for California, they were definitely trying to attract this very middle class, Midwestern, Protestant, white mm. um, resident into the city. So that, that was part of the reason they wanted this cleaned up is, or at least made less blatant is because these cribs were right. And people would comment on this, yeah, like as we're right. coming into Los Angeles. You just see it right there as you're, yeah. as you're riding and in, in. Yeah. In the case with the brothels, the, the nicer parlor houses, would they have been in a different part of the town yeah, and so, would they have blended a little better? Yes. So that's, that's a, that's a great question. The parlor houses are still within the red light district, but they also seem to be on the fringes or the transitions mm -hmm. of the, the the borders. And so, because they're in um, sort of a larger house, so it's it's it looks again very different, and it can kind of blend into the sort of residential and increasingly industrial. Um, part of the downtown area of Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and here in, in Montana, that was, you know, very similar how the, the cribs were, were located right, like here in Bozeman, they're right downtown. But in our railroad towns, they're right along the railroad, um, mm -hmm. right along the railway. Um, mm -hmm. So people could get off the train and, you know, they're just right there. So they're very easy access. Right. And, and if you think about all of the men who are coming into Los Angeles who are maybe um, transient workers, yeah, that's I mean, they're coming in by the rail. I mean, this just makes so much sense in yeah. terms in terms of, you know, being available to your clientele. So, um, Anne-Marie, in your dissertation, you talked a little bit about the price um, prices of the the women who worked in the cribs, how much they received for their services. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the price difference was between the women who worked in the cribs versus in the parlor houses? Yeah, I don't have the exact figures right here, but because the women in the cribs are charging so little because uh -huh. they have to, because that's their clientele, they are seeing multiple clients a day. Whereas the parlor house, you know, they're charging enough that maybe they're seeing one, possibly two mm. clients a day. So yeah. in terms of the conditions, the women in the parlor house have a much better deal. And they're also able to um, not have to pay rent elsewhere. They are giving a portion of the proceeds to the madam, but 
Okay. What's also sort of interesting about that is they're not giving a cut of what they're making to pimps because madams right. tended to be fairly intolerant of pimps. They would keep sort of, yeah, they yeah. were running the show. I remember, Crystal, yep. you saying also that a lot of, at least in the ones you researched, alcohol, there was sort of a business you were running alongside mm -hmm. the prostitution business, which was as you're hosting, so you could be charging for drinks and alcohol right. and those things as well. Um, so there's money coming in multiple ways. So my question is also, before we leave this, is that um, you talked also about how the cribs definitely class difference because there's volume, but there's much more ethnic diversity oh, yes. there than you would find in the parlor houses. And I'm wondering, too, about for women who were white, who ended up out there in one of these places, what would be the distinction that could get you like the parlor house gig over the crib? Would, would you have had to have maybe had some education or ability to, like, I'm just sort of, yeah. because we don't know so much about what circumstances brought these women to these awful points in their life yep. where they have very yep. little option and this is a choice that they can make a living. So not everyone can get the parlor house jobs. Do you have any right. sense, yeah, what you think? Well, this is, again, this is where um, someone like Cynthia Blair's work, uh, she's been really helpful to me as I've been thinking through some of those differences because one of the things that she points out is that in the kind of prostitution that tends to cater to working class men, women, by virtue of not living in the cribs, retain in some ways more independence mm, right. and fluidity. Right. Yeah. You mentioned that too, which yeah. is super yeah. interesting. They're not yeah. their whole identity is not necessarily bound to that. Right. Where if you're gonna join a brothel, mm, mm -hmm. then you have chosen at least for whatever period of time that you're residing in that brothel, that's your profession. Mm. And I think that takes a certain kind of choice. And I think too, I'm sure that the the brothel owners were looking for, I mean, if you believe some of the things that you read in newspaper reports, you know, there was always way more demand for these, you know, brothels than there was for the other forms. And so they literally could sort of have their pick of mm -hmm. the women who were interested in getting into them. I should mention though, too, that even though a lot of the parlor houses tend to be more white, um, there was a fairly um, upper-class brothel that was called the Octoroon. Oh, and nice. it was run okay. by Ruth Bollinger. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the advertisement, she did talk about sort of the appeal of the mixed race women for her I'm sure, white customers, mm. um, whereas I think um, her own personal history is a little bit more complicated. But um, it, yeah, so even though the diversity is less in the parlor houses, it's not just exclusively white. And there are definitely white women who are part of the crib district. When Carrie Nation visits the crib nation, Carrie Nation being the, the big temperance reformer yeah. with the hatchet, right, yeah. famously. <laughs> she did a little tour of Los Angeles's red light district. And she um, noted that on one side of the street was sort of the French uh, mm. cribs. On the other side of the street was the American uh, cribs. And then there was also a series of cribs within Chinatown as well. So right. there it is. So you did kind of have language or ancestral sort of districts where people were from originally that they would gravitate mm -hmm. and then that might, okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. That's, that is fascinating. And, um, you know, in your dissertation, you said that it was about a dollar um, for the cribs. Mm -hmm. And, but I was curious, and that's what it was kind of here in Bozeman too. So that's interesting, mm -hmm. but I've always wondered, um, I never see prices for the parlor houses. So that's why I was asking, yeah. but it, I, you know, those must not have been as, um, noted. And, and so that's why we don't maybe ever see a, those maybe prices. Maybe ran a tab up yeah, over there like yeah, you do, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but just even yeah. think about this, though, right? Because there is the famous book by Theodore Dreiser, Sister Carrie, mm -hmm. where she mm -hmm. goes to work at a factory. And for her week's work, she receives $4.50. Mm -hmm. And that's 1899 So even a dollar... Yeah, is a lot. I mean, again, relatively speaking, right. is pretty good pay. And you mentioned that in the cribs, it, they would see 13 to 34 men a night, So, um, which is 
you Oof, know, that's uh, just yeah, that's horrendous. But that's really hard to but get that's, your mind around. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't retain that whole dollar. They'd have to, you know, give everybody their cut. But that's still they're still making so much more money. So than than the factory workers, like you mentioned. Yeah. So so you can see the lure of of the of working in this profession. So so that's kind of the 19th century in Los Angeles's red, red light district. But I want to kind of move us a little bit forward in time and talk a little bit more about the 1890s through the 1910s because of course this was a huge time of reform in the United States. There was dress reform, there was prohibition, there was um, temperance, um, there was uh, women um, trying to get the vote at this point in time. So there was all these reform movements and all these reformers. And of course they were going after the red light districts and they were going after the saloons and any kind of vice really. So can you tell us a little bit about this time period within LA and you know that kind of of course would then reflects what's happening in red light districts around the nation as well. Yeah, a lot of historians have written about this particular time with regard to prostitution because uh, these progressive era reformers uh, tend to see the city's toleration of red light districts as almost a symbol of what had gone wrong with unchecked urbanization and industrialization. Mm. And so they're not satisfied any longer with the municipal, let me just say that again. They're not satisfied (laughs) with the municipal policy of uh, tacit acceptance. Mm. They see that this policy has led to a lot of corruption And so they are all about moving from a policy of informal toleration to at least officially eradication. And so in Los Angeles, this leads to kind of a series of crackdowns Mm -hmm. of the red light district. And because the cribs are seen as worse than the parlor houses, and it really is largely because of the presence of pimps. Mm. And one could say a little bit more about that in that here you have middle class reformers who are concerned not only with women who are departing from traditional gender norms, but they're maybe just as concerned about men Mm. who are departing from traditional Mm. gender norms, because that is not how respectable men ought to be making money off the earnings of women, Mm. right? Right. Um, And so they go after the ribs first, and then it's followed up by a series of crackdowns on the parlor houses. And this is where uh, Pearl Martin Morton decides to actually just leave Los Angeles and set up shop Mm. in San Francisco So um, as part of that investigation, they are also doing this at a time when the city boosters are really invested in bringing in residents Mm -hmm. to Los Angeles. They want to clean it up. So this is also Mm -hmm. um, a happy marriage, if you will, of boosterism and reform. And this is when they're shutting down those red, uh, those cribs along Alameda Street as well. Hmm, interesting. Well, there's, I, I just have to mention, there's a little tie in here with Bozeman and LA during this time period, because um, the Extreme History Project um, has our offices in a historic brothel. So that's, of course, why we're interested in in sex work and prostitution is because we've done a lot of research on it for some of our walking tours and because I work in a historic brothel every day. I'm kind of interested in it now. But the person who owned this brothel for many years, his name was Nelson Story, and he was a, you know, a, a capitalist here in Bozeman. He made a lot of money. And with some of that money, he then opened in about the 1880s, um, late 1880s, early 1900s, or I'm sorry, early 1890s, he and his son, Walter Story, built a very, um, I think it was like five or six story building in downtown Los Angeles. So, you know, he's coming in as one of these people who is kind of trying to build Los Angeles and reform it. Well, he's, he at that time owns a brothel here in Bozeman (laughs) and probably, you know, so, so it's kind of just a little bit of an interesting tie-in in this time period. Well, and I think one of the people who had property in Los Angeles that was, um, rented out by Pearl Morton was Juan Murrieta, who was, I think at one time, 
uh, Los Angeles sheriff. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these great men yes. uh, have maybe some dark <laughs> secrets, if you will. Oh, a lot of or, the Bozeman's founders whose yeah, names are yeah. on our streets. Exactly. <laughs> so um, we're just going to take a quick station break and then we'll move on with our questions. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Anne-Marie Coistra about her research on the history of sex work in Los Angeles, California. So, Anne-Marie, I want to ask more about politics. We're going to get to that in a bit because this entanglement with you know, people with political power and these red light districts and spaces where prostitution is happening, I find very fascinating. Um, but we've, in in general, kind of encountered a lot of research that's focused on sex work in the 19th century. Um, in your dissertation, though, you continue that story on by discussing prostitution in Los Angeles into the 1920s and 1930s after, as we just mentioned, reformers had shut down the cribs and the parlor houses. Um, so we know that prostitution doesn't go away, has never gone away. It just finds other locations to operate. But can you tell us a little bit then about that, what you found 20s, 30s, and then into um, sort of these periods after uh, the First World War, before we're leading up to the Second World War? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that I've been doing the last couple of years is kind of following some of the things I found in the 1920s and 30s and seeing, like, when did this start? And so I would say um, possibly in the dissertation, I saw maybe a more marked difference between the 1920s and the 19th century. And I think more recently, I'm more convinced that it's a part of a larger trend that had already started in the 19th century. So one example is that this trend toward moving toward a more clandestine kind of embodiment of sex work is already present in the 19th century. So before they actually close things down, one of the things that uh, folks did is they began to like build fences mm. so that if people are traveling down the roads, they're not necessarily seeing the prostitution. Mm. Tom mm. Savage, uh, who I write about in that historical sex work volume, he was clever enough to also realize that part of what made people really nervous in Los Angeles was being able to potentially see prostitution. And so he operated a rooming house where the, the first floor was a saloon, offices, right. and then the rooms above not at street level, was mm. where the prostitution took place. And so you definitely see this trend of moving in a more clandestine fashion. And so by the 1920s and 1930s, prostitution is still happening in rooming houses, but then it's also happening in a lot of the cheap hotels that are still in downtown Los Angeles. So that's kind of one thing that's going on. But the other big thing that's happening as you get prohibition in the 1920s, a number of men who had been um, operating in vice industries in the past, I'm thinking here, for example, of like gambling mm -hmm. operations, which right. were also illegal. Right. And maybe they had friends who were working with someone in prostitution. Men begin to see the value of almost creating a vice monopoly. And so in Los Angeles, we don't have the mafia that we know and love in Chicago, New York, <laughs> but we do have a kind of local, um, and the newspapers often refer to it as a syndicate. Uh, so yep. the newspapers are also understanding that there are certain men who actually are taking a very sort of modern business approach, even to vice and so in Los Angeles, that person in the 1920s is Charles Crawford. Okay. And apparently he had quite a head of silver hair. So he was sometimes known as the silver fox, the gray fox, because, <laughs> you know, why not? <laughs> but again, he was not someone I could really um, learn a lot about back in the day. But since my initial research, I've come to realize that he actually got a start in Seattle. Oh, wow. And he was working for the big vice operators in Seattle as kind of a middleman in their gambling industry. And then when Seattle closed down its red light district, right. he relocated and came down to Los Angeles. Okay. 
And what's quite interesting to me is that what he does is he opens a bar mm. and it's downtown. It's called the Maple Bar. And this is before Prohibition begins, maybe around 1913, maybe 1915. But this is the bar where all of the Los Angeles bigwigs hang out. Mm. This is where the Los Angeles power brokers hang out and they're men. Right. So like men are able to use this masculine subculture to forge really powerful alliances. And in this case, um, it seems to be uh, Charles Crawford meets up with Kent Parrott, who is like the campaign manager for the mayor. Mm -hmm. And through that relationship ends up becoming kind of the power broker. Right. um, So that in an age of supposed official intoleration of vice, he can offer the vice entrepreneurs the ability to keep going with their illegal operations with some assurance that they're not going to be raided or arrested. So it can stay. Yeah. So what is happening then with women? Are they forbidden to enter these spaces? Are they not encouraged? What? How does that work? Because you do describe them in here in the article, too, about Tom Savage, where these bars and saloons be, are really masculine yeah. spaces. A lot of yeah. the power brokering is going on, but women aren't present. Is it just unseemly for women to be there even before prohibition? I think, again, because of the gendered expectations of the 19th century and even to some degree into the 20th century, even though women are probably not completely absent, if you don't want to attract attention to your enterprise, you're not going to you're not going to have women hanging out because in some ways the presence of women suggests mm. that your bar is disreputable because mm. what kind of women would be seen in a bar? And this is so weird, but like even in the crib district, there is a bar in the crib district and when the heat was being turned up on the crib district, one of the things they tried to do to avoid the heat was they said, look, we're not letting the women into the saloon anymore. We're going to actually send the the alcohol out to the individual cribs. They just you know, need a buzz and we'll, and we'll bring somebody, you know, mm-hmm. we'll bring it out. Wow. So I think there's this understanding that having the gender segregation allows for the veneer of respectability. Mm-hmm. And the men are really able to use that to their advantage. No job opportunities Mm. for women in saloons, even if they were serving. And then they don't want to be in there looking like they're soliciting or and they're just drinking. So all those levels are keeping them. And that segregation leads to such a power differential. Yeah. 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 Or or preserves the power differential. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. So it's that was so interesting to me when you were talking about that in your dissertation, too. And 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 what I've seen in the Bozeman Red Light District and kind of throughout the red light districts throughout Montana is that in the early days, like the 1870s, Men owned these houses of prostitution. And then as you get into the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, women started purchasing these houses. And then they were the madams, and there was no pimps. Um, We didn't have pimps here in in Montana. Pimps were kind of, there just wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Sometimes they had men called secretaries who were more like, I think, bouncers than anything, but no pimps. So it was, it was the women kind of that 1890s through 1910, um, really through the end of the, um, the red light district, um, time through about 1918 here in Montana, it was the women who were in power. But then, of course, they lose all power after 1918 when red light districts are shut down. And then I see men coming in, kind of like you were saying in the 1920s, and and really taking over all vice. And that happens here in Montana, too, because the women just have to work out of the back of saloons or in these assignation houses. And of course, they have to have men broker the service then. They can't do it themselves. Um, And so they lose all um, power. They lose all agency then. So, so that, and you, and, and I think that's so fascinating how you talk about it in your dissertation. And so, you know, we've kind of mentioned Tom Savage and we've kind of mentioned your chapter in this book called Historical Sex Work. And so I just want to talk a little bit about this book, and then we can continue on with this conversation. But um, 
there's a book called Historic, Historical Sex Work, New Contributions from History and Archaeology that came out in 2020. What an awful year to have a book come out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. Maybe but, people were reading a lot. Yeah, maybe they were. They were. <laughs> they were reading. Um, and um, but anyway, you have a chapter in this book called "The Enterprising Career of Tom Savage in Los Angeles Red Light Districts from 1870 to 1909," and I really love this book. It's so fascinating because it combines history and archaeology, which for anything I think is really valuable to combine these two disciplines because one is more of a science and one is more of a humanity and you can just learn so much more by combining them. And so I love that you did this in this book. So can you just talk a little bit about the book and kind of how it came about and then we'll get back to to Tom Savage and some of the stuff happening in LA. Yeah, sure. Well, this one is easy. I was presenting a conference paper on Los Angeles's Crib District at the Western Association of Women Historians Conference. And this is what we do, right? We give these papers and hope that somebody thinks what we're doing is interesting. And Kristen Fellows was in the audience to hear that paper. And I don't know if she already had it in her head that she wanted to do this this book or if she, I'm sure she did. I'm sure she had it in her head that she wanted to do something like this. And so she, along with... The other two editors approached me and said, would I be willing to write up my paper and contribute it to this edited collection? And of course, I was delighted to do so, Um, even though, yeah, as you say, it was a weird time. Um, We didn't know that yet. It was a weird time for me personally for a lot of reasons. But um, yeah, Mm. I was really happy that it came out. And I love also the interdisciplinary nature. That's one of the hallmarks actually of the place where I work because we do interdisciplinary work all the time. And I do think it really enriches um, the conversation. One of the things I just want to mention quickly, and you can cut me off at any time here, but because I did present at one point then at a conference with other archaeologists, I so love how the archaeologists are Um, appreciative of the material nature of prostitution and sex work. And so I really think those kinds of insights about like, what do these objects tell us about the lives that these folks live? I think that really played into some of the research I recently did at the Huntington Library in Mm. Los Angeles, well, San Marino, California, because I was able to find some probate records that were listing the, yeah, list cataloging, Mm -hmm. like what was in the house of Cora Phillips, because she was actually Mm -hmm. someone who owned her parlor house. And then after she died, it went to her um, common law partner and he was contesting the estate. And so there's a list. And again, the fact that she had all of this jewelry. And of Mm -hmm. course, if you don't think about it, you kind of like, oh, she just likes pretty things, but no, This was a way to make an investment that was then portable. Like she could take that, you know, and I loved reading about the different kinds of furniture that you saw in the parlor house with the the lace curtains. And yes, there's the bed, but there's also all of the quilts and the linens. And and then to discover that alongside of the inventory for some of the cribs and the the Mm. sparseness, again, it helps me to at least appreciate the different things that each space was trying to accomplish and the different ways in which women would have experienced those spaces. So, Oh, I love that. Yeah. So we have an inventory. So in our brothel, um, there was a woman who worked there for many years, which is kind of unheard of. She worked there for in this house for almost 12 years. And she was the madam for almost 12 years in this house. And so, um, and then a year before her death, she she actually bought the two, house, two houses next to this house. And so then she mm-hmm. became an owner and a madam. And then mm-hmm. she died um, just a year after she bought these houses. She, she um, became sick with cancer, uterine cancer, and died of uterine cancer. And so um, we have her inventory. And right at the top, of course, is the $1,000 diamond necklace, um, mm-hmm. the two diamond rings. The, and I love how you said that because it's so important that this jewelry was 
key. All these women had this jewelry because oftentimes they had to get out of town quick. And what better way to just grab your jewels, put them in your pocket, and get on the train and go? So it was that portable wealth that they could they had and they just would keep in their drawer probably or in their safe. She had a safe in her, on her inventory yep. list. But also on her inventory list, she had six spittoons. So oh, yes. So we know, well, mm, probably yeah. there was six rooms, you know, in this in yep. these houses that she had. So, you know, the inventory is huge for I right. I love those. Yeah, and think about that too, right? Because in the parlor house, again, Cora Phillips parlor house, every room in the main parlor house, because she actually also owns several pieces of property, the main parlor house, there was a cuspidor in every single room. Oh. Not so in the um crib rooms. So right, again, right. even the the cleanliness yes. of the space yes. is 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 an interesting thing to think about. Well, so much. I mean, we've talked about this before, but some of the madams in Bozeman too, one in particular was doing so well that she often even donated to to things and was well known and she's buried in our cemetery with a, a gargantuan headstone. It's my favorite story because yeah. I'm like, she's just mixed in there with everyone else, not ostracized in death, even if maybe she was in life. And she had enough money, you know, to afford this fancy thing and to some degree was was recognized, you know, and this is way before the reformers and stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, but getting, getting back uh, uh, on track here a little bit, um, I'm interested also in in the health you know, we, you're bringing up some of the cleanliness, but that I can't help but think about the possibility of of pregnancies and the overall health of these women and diseases they may have been just from the nature of the work. Of course, mm -hmm. anything that has come across your research path as you've looked at what's going on either through the decades or the differences between the cribs, the parlor houses, and then also this more clandestine phase where they're in hotels and in back rooms above mm -hmm. saloons and things. Yeah. The most direct information I got um, from the records about the health of the women was from a 1909 transcript. And so imagine we are in the year that we're cracking down on the red light district. Um, the reformers I'm sure were interested in assigning blame to someone. Um, the mayor uh, had to leave office. And so one of the people who ended up being charged in this whole corruption and the relationship between prostitution and politics was a Los Angeles police department officer named Thomas Broadhead. So he gets charged with bribery. Um, and I actually looked at my notes, the transcript for the case was well over 2,500 pages. Wow. Everybody testified. Wow. Oh, my. Except women. Oh. No women testify. Mm. Tom Savage testifies. Los Angeles Police Department folks testify. No single woman working in the business, if wow. you will, testifies. Huh. Yeah, that's also kind of remarkable. But yeah. A number of people um, testified about how basically, at least through like 1907 through 1909, the police officers were making uh, routine trips into the red light district to basically monitor it. And they would um, stop by once a week to do their visits. And according to the testimonies of at least three different officers, one of the jobs that they had was to go into... Um, and it was mostly um, parlor houses and then sort of the mid-level brothels that were okay. in the city. And they would go and look for health certificates. Mm, okay. And that's not necessarily surprising. We see this in other cities. But then there was a doctor who testified. And it was um, none other than the Los Angeles Police Department um, uh, surgeon who actually said, yes, I wrote some of these health certificates and they would sometimes just come over to my office to get them. Or I would make, I guess, home visits to give them the certificates. But that wasn't the only person assigning these health certificates. There was a, a doctor, a Dr. Stoner, who claimed he had been issuing the certificates for close to 12 years hmm. and that he was only one of 12 to 15 other doctors who were routinely examining these women 
and giving them health certificates. Okay, we got to back up here for a minute for me (laughs) and maybe some listeners because I'm super confused. I was imagining like bizarrely that there'd be a health certificate they had to display on the wall in the <laughs> saloon or the, but you mean these are things for individual women what would yeah. what were these health certifications for were they just i think clean bill of health okay and the women would display them in the in their rooms room. where they were working so men who cared about that who didn't want to yep. of course the men don't the have to that display were... a certificate yeah, that they're not bringing well, no. anything in yeah oh god yeah because yeah. the women are the only one who trans and, and this dr stoner said like this was such a routine part of his practice wow. that he even had a printer that he employed wow. to print the certificates then which he could then fill in yeah. as needed so that these women would be able to display the health certificates. And according to at least one police officer, if they didn't have the certificate saying, yes, I'm, you know, free of venereal diseases, what have you, that would be cause for arrest. Oh, wow. I wonder how often they got huh. arrested. So yeah. were the police taking bribes, actually, as they were going around and doing these things, too, do you think? Well, they're taking more bribes when the reformers are putting up the heat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there does seem to be, Tom Savage claims that until the reformers crack down and persuade city officials to crack down, he was not paying any money to anybody. So it That's was just tacitly kind of monitored, trying to keep it in its place. Right, because what's more important to the politician is not the money, it's the votes. Oh. Right. So let's get into the politics thing. because Yeah, and talk a little bit about Tom Savage or kind of explain his role in all yeah. this because I don't know if we did that. Yeah, yet. let's go yeah. back to so, that. Okay, Tell so us a little Tom bit about Savage, him. Yeah. He's, he is, again, very fascinating. Um, he was the um, second generation Irish immigrant. His family seems to have lived in San Francisco. He comes to Los Angeles at a young age along with several of his brothers. And he is the classic working class, masculine subculture icon. Um, Mm. He hangs out in bars. He is a boxer. He um, is definitely willing to um, use his Blarney to get where he needs to go. And um, I mentioned he ends up operating this bar. He gets on the Los Angeles City Council. (laughs) And it seems to be the case that you know, he and others like him, because he's certainly not the only one, they basically make deals with um, local city officials. Like, um, if you kind of turn a blind eye or give me even special treatment, I can harness the working class votes, especially, again, of the guys that are that are in my bar. Yeah. Right. OK. So, so they're he's basically the people that take advantage of his vice businesses, the people that are patronizing oh, yeah. it or that work for him, because you do go on and like there's musicians, there's food, there's all these oh, yeah. other industries, yeah. right, that yeah. are tied that are oh, yeah. even non vice ones that are tied in, though, to the vice right. ones. So so in the saloon context, then where the power broker is going on. That's where Savage, a man like Savage, can yeah. use his Blarney, his swagger, and he can start making those deals. And and right. so he can start promising votes, but then he, he can leverage getting himself into political yes. positions. Yes. He was at the Democratic, um, like, again, local and even state um, conventions wow. as a delegate on multiple occasions. Wow. And they're even having their political meetings where else? In the saloon. The bar. Right. <laughs> His bar. Right. Fantastic. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. So this, now tell, remind us again, this is kind of the, uh, this is early 1900s? So it's, um, he is in, I think, the office maybe 1890s. Okay. Uh, he ends up dying um, within the first decade of the 20th century. Okay. Okay. So Morphine then- overdose. Morphine overdose, which that, is that's how he not, died. Yeah, he died oh, of gosh. a morphine overdose. You, you mentioned yeah. morphine overdose or attempted, and in, in it just in this one up. article, yeah. there's so many yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that really speaks to the drug use mm. that is rampant in these red light districts. Yeah. But mm. a no, yeah. whole another podcast on that. But <laughs> yeah. wow. but um, so so you know, Tom Savage is is kind of raising up through the ranks. So what is happening with the women, the madams? Um, You know, who were the power brokers at one point? Are they kind of losing that power? What's happening there? That's a great question. 
There is definitely a period of time in the 19th century, I'd say 1870s all the way through 1890s and maybe even into the first years of 1900, where because parlor houses and even sort of mid-level brothels are catering to one kind of client, middle-class, upper-class clients, and the cribs are catering to those working-class clients, that in some ways there is a um, coexistence mm -hmm. because they're not necessarily directly competing. competing. Okay. And Tom yeah. Savage seems to have hung out with some of these other city officials at Pearl Morton's at times, for example. Okay. Um, so what begins to happen, though, is um, over time they're losing ground to these men, and especially that's going to happen by the um, 1920s once you get this whole consolidation of power and these mon vice monopolies. Okay. So they kind of just lose out at yeah. that point and, and move, like you said, um, to San Francisco or just go elsewhere yeah. where they can have some yeah. Um, yeah. power. So, so um, Anne-Marie, we kind of want to sort of pull back a little bit and and think about two questions uh, for you. Do you think that sex workers we're talking about in this period or at any point in time in the 19th or 20th century, the women in particular, do you feel that they had some sort of agency or that some of them did? If so, which ones? Um, and second, extreme history, one of the missions is to really make history relevant. So we're interested in um, also how how you find this topic, though it's historical, really relevant today. And those those two things, you know, relate to each yeah. other for sure. Yeah, I know. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And it's, I think, something that um, people who write about this think about all the time. And um, I think agency is kind of a tricky thing. Mm. Um, and I think any historian who writes about this topic notes that in a world of few options, especially in the late 19th, early 20th century, some women saw sex work as a better option over the other limited choices they could make. Mm. And so when I think about, okay, within a world of limited choices, so I've already qualified my answer. Someone like Cora Phillips seems like someone who maybe had more agency compared to others. She is somebody who, as we've talked about, was the case in Montana as well. She's a madam who is successful enough to run the business rather than to service the clients herself, it seems. Right. She is able to own property. She dies a wealthy woman. And she seems to have found even a um, companion, mm. um, Joe Manning, who does inherit her property and then um, rents out the um, parlor house to other women. And so maybe she represents an example of agency. But I think that question becomes um, more complicated when you look at another example of someone who, again, on the face of it, seems like she could be an example of agency. And this is Tom Savage's common law um, wife, Mae Dav Davenport. So while Tom Savage is running the um, saloon on the first floor and running his politics, May Davenport um, seems to have run the prostitution end. And when she dies, um, she also dies um, a relatively wealthy woman. But um, talking about morphine use, uh, it seems that she uh, took a morphine overdose following an argument mm -hmm. with Tom Savage. And so... Right. Is that agency? Uh, it's hard to know, but I think they're like, I think these are women who are, are given limited options and are able to certainly act shrewdly and to, um, in some cases, make options that work for them for a time. And I think, too, about all the women who were um, in the business rather informally and moved out. I mean, Mm -hmm. The reformers like to say everybody died after five years of being in the profession. Well, that's just not true. Right. <laughs> so some women were able to leave and maybe reinvent themselves. Yeah. And, yeah. And one other question, just before I toss it back to you, Crystal, we were talking about earlier is um, 
just if you've come across, you know, we're looking, we're talking about vice, we're talking about sex work, we're talking about women providing the sex work. I'm just interested if you've come across, you know, queer issues, LGBTQ communities, places where we have homosexual behavior or spaces where those were occurring and do they overlap? Do they, you know, how Mm. does that factor in or were they even harder to get information about, you know, and find out about historically, even more secretive and 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 less uh, tolerated by the the police and the political, you know, officials. Yeah, other historians have done better work on this than I have. Admittedly, um, there is a book about um, Los Angeles and um, folks who are not heteronormative, um, but in the nineteenth century. The newspapers did not speak of it. Mm. It was not in the court transcripts. Um, the closest I got to finding an actual primary source about this was from Lee Francis, who described herself as a Hollywood madam from the 1920s. And she talked about sometimes using men for the purpose of prostitution, but it didn't sound as though the way that she talked about it, that they were necessarily um, exclusively servicing other men. And it wasn't as though, like, she would bring them in when she needed a special request. Mm -hmm. So I Mm -hmm. have not found so much evidence of that um, men servicing men or even women servicing women, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let's come back, Anne-Marie, to that idea, kind of bringing it into the present. Mm -hmm. And why is it? Yeah. So I'm struck by the fact that we're having this conversation at the same time that in Minnesota, there is a case involving a wealthy man who is being charged. Um, He is on trial right now. He's being charged for working with a woman to find underage girls to pay to have sex with. And of course, he is denying these charges, but... Like a um, Jeffrey Epstein wannabe. Yeah, yeah. Right. And again, there hasn't been a lot coming out yet about the trial. um, But from what I hear, again, the women that have testified so far resemble these women who are facing, um, again, limited choices. Mm. And I, I just think like this issue of women facing limited choices is still very much present. At the same time, this article is in the news locally. There's also an article in um, the Minnesota News about how we have one of the highest um, rates of women being employed at the same time that we have one of the highest rates of gender disparity in wages. Mm, yeah. Yep. And so, again, I just I think like what what would our world look like if we did, in fact, have equal opportunities, even in this small area of economics and women didn't feel like this was their one um thing of value that they had to offer. Right. So I, I do think that there is actually pretty um, important current event kind of connections. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. And thank you for saying that. I think that, you know, um, you're spot on with all of that. And also here in Montana, we always um, talk about the missing and murdered indigenous women right. aspect right. of this as well right. and sex trafficking. Mm. And so we try to always bring that to the present when we do our, we do our red light district walking tour. And we always talk about that because of course, some of our, our madams were trafficking women um, and bringing in young girls who were 14 years old to do this work. And one, one of our madams brought in a 14-year-old girl and was charged with that crime. Um, she had to pay $500, which for her was just jump change. And she just, you know, went down, paid that, and went right back to business. So, you know, I feel like it, it is very much uh, um, prostitution, even though the red light, we don't have red light districts anymore, is still very much with us. And all these things that come with it are still with us. And so it's important to acknowledge that and understand why is that? Why do we still have this? I so. know, and these ideas that women who it's happened to them, they've been forced into it. You know, at other times people would say, oh, that woman is ruined now, you know, socially ostracized, you know, and in other countries, obviously, it's just still going on. But regardless of that, there's just the PTSD of having that whole experience that, mm-hmm. that was happening then and happening now. So mm-hmm. it is such an important topic. Um 
And this was a super interesting perspective on it for the both of us. And it, and it is a national story as much as it is a local story, you know, for these mm-hmm. Western towns. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, Anne-Marie. We'd love to discuss more with you all day, but we've run out of time in this podcast. So we just want to thank you again for spending so much time talking with us today. And we want to ask you where people can find the book, Historical Sex Work. Um, I would actually suggest that you go to your local library, see if it's in there. Um, you can find it at the University of Florida, and you can also find it very pricely on Amazon. Um, there are some used copies floating around. Um, if you're interested, though, in my work, uh, definitely, if you're listening, just feel free to reach out and uh, connect with me personally, and I'll, I'll be in touch. Okay, that Fantastic. sounds wonderful. Yeah. And do you mind sharing your email address, Anne-Marie, so people can reach out? Yes. Okay. So um, Koistra is a little difficult for folks, but it is A-Koistra, K-O-O-I-S-T-R-A, at Bethel, B-E-T-H-E-L, dot E-D-U, first three letters of education. All right, that's fabulous. And I and I interlibrary loaned your book, so the the historical sex work. So that's another option too if your local library doesn't have it, just interlibrary loan. (laughs) So that's great. Well, thank you so much, Anne Marie. Um, So enjoyed this conversation today, and thank you for taking the time as well. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So thanks to all of our listeners out there also for joining us today. And if you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the the dirt dirt on on the the past. Thank you again to the Western Heritage Center for sponsoring this episode. We so appreciate it. And a big shout out to Kevin. Um, We'd also like to thank our editors, Drake Pinnell and Sierra Thomas. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to Steve Durbin at KGVM and John Chadwell for help getting this podcast out in the world. (laughs) 